I'm Jason. And I'm Maddie. And this is Making Sense of Chaos. Thanks everyone for listening to Making Sense of Chaos. Today's episode is just with myself and an old friend, Jess. I really hope you enjoy this conversation. It's basically a reflection of our usual conversations that we've had early on in my life and it was really great to catch up and connect on various different topics and areas of being a human being. Thanks for listening. Hey, great. Okay, so Jess, um, welcome to the Making Sense of Chaos podcast. Um, We know each other in a actually i'll get you to describe how you know me how we formed a connection and um i'll let you take the four okay no worries so i think it all started when we were thrown together in uni and probably found that we were somewhat kindred spirits i'd say and that we had very similar outlooks on things and weren't scared to sort of jump in and explore and say things that other people probably weren't comfortable to to do so I think that sums it up pretty well yes and that's that's exactly why it's it's a strange thing because when I started this podcast with Maddie um I've had a similar relationship um with you than I had with her or have with her and um it is very much um I suppose I look at the origin of where it all started and it's definitely sort of our relationship um yeah I just remember it being um we didn't know each other that well at the start but then it was almost like yeah you're right that synergy um we're just drawn to each other um so I think that's a really good sort of place to sort of uh, have a conversation because um I have no idea you know where you've been really on on many levels philosophical psychological um so maybe um, since I've last seen you, um, or maybe since we were at uni together, what's your sort of pathway been like? Where have you been? That's a good question. So I guess my pathway has been very much, oh, I want to say that it's just been very organic in that it started with um, an opportunity that I will say that I created through persistence and from there it has just had this really organic flow and I think I've just been really lucky to be able to kind of be immersed into a field where I get to do something that I have a genuine interest and passion in and I get to see this whole other side to people and a system um, and almost like a little world that a lot of other people can just see maybe on the TV or on the news and they just have this little made-up perspective about. Okay. And the context behind this made-up, what is it? What world are you part of? Yeah. So I work in the field of reintegration. Um, So I work with men who have been in the prison system for a very long time or who have committed some very serious offences um, and we work to reintegrate them back into community. Okay. Okay. So, and you've been doing this work since how long? 2015, 14? Yeah. Yeah, I'd say pretty much 2016. So I jumped in straight out of uni, started working with females actually and progressed to people who have cognitive impairments and mental health issues and now work solely with men. Okay. Okay. And I suppose what's your, what's your view on sort of the philosophy behind what you're doing? I mean, you're working with some of the people that some, some others would view as uh, unmovable or people that shouldn't be uh, rehabilitated or um, even regenerated anyway, to be put back into society. Um, What's your philosophy on, I mean, it's a big question, but um, what's your philosophy on what you do? I kind of think of it as if we don't do it, who will? So 
people want all of these problems to go away and they want people not to exist, but they're not willing to do anything about it other than ostracise people and isolate people and basically create a bigger problem. So I think being able to see outside of that perspective and seeing that if you're not willing to get in there and if you're not willing to accept these people for who they are now, who have hopefully come some way from what they've done, then how do you expect them to reach a place where maybe those behaviours won't exist anymore? How do you expect to live in a society where these people don't exist anymore? You can't just eradicate a behaviour, for example, without making a change. Mm -hmm. I suppose if we were to use an example of what type of crimes, or let's just say, I mean, obviously we have society standards and we have um, prisons to um, disconnect um, a crime from, from, from the norm. I suppose how, how, do we, how do we make those, how do we help people that are um, lost away or, or locked away from, from the world? Should, should we? Yeah, so, I mean, that's a big question. I think you have to go back to the start. So if you don't want that problem to happen, you need to, to get people at the start. You need to get them when they're kids. You need to make sure the environment that they are raised in or the people that they are around are willing to, to nurture the, the people that you want to see in society. So I think it... That's a very big question, which is really good. Um, but, yeah, if, if you, I guess, want, want these behaviours to change and you're looking at people as who they are now, what can you do now for this person who has just maybe walked out of this environment where they've been for 20, 30 years for something they might have done, um, you know, when they were a heck of a lot younger and some circumstances um, that were not favourable and I am in no way justifying anyone's behaviour or what anyone has done. Um, but if you look at that person, who they were, when that happened and look at them now, you're looking at someone who has lost a lot of things and that doesn't mean that they're excused for their behaviour. I, I know a lot of people still pay a, a lot of penance for what they've done um, but you're looking at a very different person who's lost people liberties opportunities they've lost so so many chances in their life and now they've got this very almost narrow pathway of who they could be um, and even then you they just sometimes need the, those people around them to kind of break through and actually see that, no, it's not this narrow little pathway. You have so many opportunities. Mm. Um, and part of that problem is, I guess, people giving them a chance. Mm. So, so before, let's just, let's just say, um, you know, it's probably not so important to know necessarily the crimes because that's in some ways quite semantics. And we, we have talked to, we actually reminded me of, we spoke to a, a forensic psych a few episodes ago who talked about the sort of um, sexual crime we've sort of got a gist around you know that uh, there's a lot of different causes and conditions situations and contexts that lead to someone um, perpetrating or be involved in the justice system at all um, and I suppose this sort of comes to you know sort of the, the deeper sort of human condition side of things is like are we are we any different am I any different are you any different to the person that you're working with um, um, in in trying to reintegrate them back into society, um, are we any different to someone who commits a heinous crime, um, a, a sex crime, uh, a murder, a manslaughter? You know what what delineates um, me from you, and what delineates me from someone who's been in the system for twenty years? Yeah, well, I think um, you know manslaughter is a really good example. You could be driving your car and, and have an accident and end someone's life then and there, and it's not because you were drunk. It's not because you were speeding. It could just be a sheer, absolute shitty coincidence of fate that you mm. have done this thing. 
does that make you a bad person? Mm. No, no. I mean, it, uh, that's the thing. It's it's uh, uh, it's uh, those causes and conditions that the random chance of um, being part of something catastrophic um, that affects, you know, has many different pathways that affects the person who's committed the, the crime or committed the, the accident or whatever label you want to put onto it. Um, and it's actually interesting because, you know, we, we, we've spoken to someone who's been, who was in that very incident, you know, my mother-in-law, in fact, we spoke to her on the podcast, you know, a year and a half ago, very similar thing, except complete accident, wasn't charged yet, you know, that's stayed with her um, for, for 20 plus years. Um, and versus somebody in a different situation where they're charged with manslaughter and they're in a locked locked away from the world, condemned, as you said, narrowed, and um, but they're still human beings. They're still living, breathing human beings. And, um, you know, I, it, it, the, the question that I ask that sort of comes from that is, is what's the point of... And this is for broader question. What, what is the point of sort of incarcerating people from a from a prison point of view, locking them yeah. away, so to speak? Yeah. Well, that I guess that's the question, isn't it? Because <laughs> if you, if you've got the person who's in there for this accident sitting next to the person who did something with a lot of intent and planning, and you know it was very malicious, you've got two people who come from very different places who might have very different morals and very different everything and they're in the exact same place as each other they're being treated the exact same way so I guess the the goal is prison is there so um you have a place to rehabilitate and reintegrate um and learn those behaviors and and I guess um have that deprivation of liberty as part of that but I guess what is the outcome when you look at all these people coming out of prisons are they rehabilitated are they reintegrated are they so institutionalized that they don't know what to do except go back there Mm. Mm. is it I mean so is it is it fantasy that we is it more about the people on the outside to have a have this sort of idealistic peace of mind that danger or risk or fear is locked away. That is, is you know, that they're not, you know, almost further separating um, us from them. Yeah, I think we, we come from a place that's very much got a tough on crime stance, mm. um, whereas you look at other places in other parts of the world who are also wanting to be seen as, you know, tough on crime, we're not standing for this, but instead of, punishment they're providing support they're decriminalizing you know um, things that maybe happen for instance there's so many countries now that are starting to decriminalize um, drugs and instead of being incarcerated for that you are being provided with treatment and you're being met with support again it's very different depending on the type of offense that person commits um, and I do think that there very much is a need for people to understand that decisions and actions have consequences and that people do need something to deter that behaviour and to change that behaviour. Mm-hmm. But I think it is very much looking at what that is, I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all, which is obviously why we have all the different laws and different, you know, different criminal codes and sections and legislations. But I think that, the, as you said, the perspective I feel sometimes is very much to keep this everyone safe and, and to feel safe. And there's nothing wrong with that. Mm. Mm. It makes me. It makes me just. I mean, it makes me think. Well, there's two things in the two different directions. So I'm sort of querying how I sort of go with that. But I suppose I'm going to go with sort of the darker side naturally. Um, I suppose. Do you see yourself in some of the people that you work with? Do you see the? Do you, do you see the? Um, let's just call it the, the darker side or the 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 the, the side of you that. Um, you know, 
everyone naturally tries to sort of hide away or evade from day-to-day life. Um, do you see yourself, um, you know, do you sort of look, look in the mirror sometimes and sort of have a resemblance to the people that you work with? I think that for me personally, hmm. I, I don't have a personal connection to, you know, those little things that you've mentioned. But you definitely go, wow, like, would that have been me in that situation? Would that have ended the same way? Would it have been someone else I know? Um, you know, there's some things that you, you I guess, hear about and look at and you're like, wow, I could, like, never do that. I don't, I don't understand how someone could do that behaviour. I mean completely understanding from a psychological perspective how and why but Mm. from a moral perspective obviously no there's no connection there but you know you do I guess see when you're working with someone the human parts of them and you see the personable parts of them and you see the true personality kind of coming out and you're like "Hmm, okay this person is a lot more now than what they've done however many decades ago, however many years ago, and not necessarily seeing yourself in those people but seeing a person who if you met them on the street, you would never pick what they had done or where they had been in mm. the last few years of their life. Right. And, and I suppose what are some of the, the human sides you know, when you, when you are sort of working with them, you are, um, I mean, I've had experiences as well where sort of, I mean, you, you no matter what someone's done, like, like, we, like I said before, we are all human. We are, we, you know, we are all fallible. We all make sort of mistakes and some, um, like I said, the trajectories that lead you to that point can intensify that mistake or, um, you know, and it's, it's very context dependent, you know, where you're born, where you live, your culture, and all that sort of stuff. So what are the sort of some of the human things that you see in your work that makes it sounds like worth it, makes it actually meaningful for you? Yeah, I, I think that the fact that there are people who have been let down so many times by so many different places, people and systems who are still willing to believe in someone else to give them a shot. They mm. are still willing to believe that there is someone out there who believes in them and and who will help them I think that's such a huge aspect because if you don't have that if you don't have that initial it's it's not even rapport at that stage I'd say it's just that initial trust or hope then there's pretty little chance of anything else going forward until you're met with even more persistence you know some people are used to if I push you away the first time you're not going to come back but you do and you come back another time and you know eventually they realize that okay this is an actual real possibility that I could (laughs) that I could really you know have a chance here to start building something and start looking towards something. Mm. Yeah. So you have to have, you have to have hope in the human condition ultimately, like from a very existential point of view, you have to be able to go, no matter what they've done, this is a human being. And that, that is the platform of how you, how you look at them. You, you, you're not looking them at them through a lens of this sort of demon, this sort of, this degraded sort of human that's made decisions and made mistakes. You look at them as, sort of a, a human, you know, a human that's um, had altered conditions. Um, so I suppose sort of moving on away from the work because sort of work stuff is great to talk about and um, it, it's, it's, it sounds like it's a um, sort of very powerful space um, that you're in. But from a personal point of view and part of the reason why I sort of wanted to speak to you is because well, I just wanted to have a chat about our, sort of our personal philosophies again and sort of reconnect and, and you know, more to hear you speak around something as, um, something as powerful as death and, and dying and your view on 
um, sort of the dying process um, and death in general. What's your what's your view on it? What's your do you think about it? Well, I don't think you can really escape it at the moment. It's pretty much everywhere you look. Um, everyone has is sick and tired of hearing about COVID, but you know, you turn on the TV or the radio or open your phone and look at social media, and this is how many people died today. And then you see that there is you know, a possible war starting in another country and there's been wars going on in so many countries for so long and I don't think you can really not think about it. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely there. Um, I think it all just really depends. I think it really, I think to be able to think about it and then kind of go, oh, well, and put it aside for the day is very privileged mm-hmm. and I'm, I think I'm very much aware that, you know, I have that privilege and a lot of people in this country have that privilege, which is, you know, great for us, but it doesn't, it doesn't really take away um, when that's happening to, you know, you immediately and and people around you. Um, And it's definitely, you know, when you're experiencing it, yeah, it's a scary thing. And when you're looking back at it, though, it's great to have all those philosophical thoughts like, okay, this is, this is how I would I would want it to be and this is what I think happens. And, um, yeah, I think it just very much, it just depends on who you're, I guess, who it is as well. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure about you, but, you know, I'm my personal philosophy is, I guess, you know, it's going to happen to everyone and it does happen to everyone and whether that's by choice or pleasant or completely unexpected and way before maybe it should happen, I think that that finality is is so much more impactful and I, I think... You just—it's very like personal and internal, and I, I just—I couldn't even put it into words. To be honest, I don't know. Mm. Um, you know, I—I I, I guess my philosophy is very fleeting, depending on who the person is, and and what what that person is to me. Okay, okay. interesting. Yeah, and I, and I can I can tell that obviously, you know, when you when you when you talk about death, it's not something that you just it's not a um, it's not a common sort of dinner table talk or a common you know family discussion you know especially non western cultures to speak around death and um, I, I suppose you know the the finality of you mentioned finality and the privilege I really like those two elements because the fact that um, you know you can even philosophize and think about the fact that you could die and use that to your to your aid as a way to to live a meaningful life and the way to see a clear a clear world um, is, is a privilege because it means you've got time. It means you've usually got sort of some sort of context or space or education, and it's it, it is very interesting because um, you know I I personally uh, for a period of time took the sort of higher ground. Really, I sort of um, thought I was some sort of philosophical god at, at one point when I started to really sort of think about and and meditate on death and sort of deviated into Buddhism and I, I I honestly thought I knew something that someone else didn't and that took me to a really sort of dark sort of enclosed space where um it uh it felt a lot of despair but I also felt like I was um, I was on top of the hierarchy that, 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 that I knew something and I, and, I, and I brought that confidence sort of ego into my work and to my relationships and it's not until sort of recently it's not until sort of maybe the last six months to a year that that word privilege sort of really sort of I thought you know I'm no, I'm no better than somebody else just because I think about philosophical terms around death and dying and you know, whether I can sit in bed and meditate about my dead corpse 
that doesn't make me that doesn't make me um, any more enlightened. Um, it's the way I've chosen to live my life, but it doesn't make me any more or any less than anybody else. Um, so I suppose, Jess, do you do you you know like you're um, you're getting married married soon, and um, you, I suppose you've you've you found someone that you want to spend hopefully a lot of your existence with. Um, and I suppose how does your relationship, um, how has that changed your way of sort of living and existing, you know, knowing that there's somebody else that you've chosen to be with that you, that you, could, that you could lose? Well, I think we all kind of have the idealistic way to go. Like, oh, I'd love to be in my 90s and have the, the notebook pass away where you just both fall asleep <laughs> in bed and you just don't wake up and you're holding hands and it's all very romantic and picture book. But, you know, that doesn't happen. So um, it's, it's very confronting to, to you know, and um, to even think of those things. And as most people would know who have been in um, long-term relationships or who have built a house or who have kids, you need to think about those things and you need, you, you know, it's so confronting looking at, okay, cool, like who's going to get my super when I die? And, you know, even as, a 14, 15-year-old getting your first job, you have to make that decision then and there and fill out the form. So I guess as you progress through life, you hit all these milestones that make it more realistic and, you know, oh, that, that actually might get closer to happening. And I guess it's such a big milestone that you um, pointed out. Just it, it kind of does make you go, like, this, this is the life that I want, but... Although, you know, I have all the hopes in the world, I am a bit realistic and I have seen, you know, what happens around you to, to other people who love each other very much and who care about each other or who have built the most wonderful life together and you see what happens um, in the most ridiculous you know, moment that you could never have predicted. Mm. And it, it's, yeah, it's very confronting and very... You know, it's very, it makes you very uncomfortable to think about those things. You don't want to sit there and, and, and like you said, that's, that's great that you can meditate, sit there and meditate about it. But, you know, if I had to sit there and meditate over those things, sure, I can say everything happens for a reason and things are going to happen. And, you know, you don't really have much of a choice other than to suck it up and deal with it. But then, you know, when those things happen, is that how it actually plays out? Yeah, so, so if... So you're you're in the space now where you you've got you've got an awareness of the fact that you're going to die, that your loved ones are going to die, that hopefully long you know you know let's go a bit of death denial for a bit, but hopefully down the track many many years notebook style. Um, but we know in reality that things um, there's how things are and that and that things are and that things you know there's a sort of distorted sort of idealism in, in society that we hang on to. That, that things will be, um, that things will be okay, which I, I, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and, but, but I, I suppose, is there, is there something, and I'm not sort of trying to prod you to, to philosophize here, to, to do anything around death meditation, but is there, is there something about meditating on death, you know, on a regular basis that, can provide you with some sense of um, enlightenment or clarity or, or force you to do things, force you to say things, force you to take more risks, force you to not live as if you were, you're going to die tomorrow, but live in, a, in more of a f- free space and not so constricted by the day-to-day, you know, social habits that uh, are put onto us. Well, I think, you know, I have a pretty realistic perspective that whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And like I said, you won't have a choice but to deal with it when it does happen and whether you deal with it in a healthy way or whether you deal with it in a completely self-destructive way or somewhere in between, it's it's the reality. Um, And I, I don't think for me personally, maybe focusing more time on that 
would change that perspective. I don't think it would shed any new lights. I'm very much about, you know, you have the ability to do this and let's do it. Um, I, I feel like sometimes if people, and uh, of course my opinion, if people are living in the perspective that, you know, I'm, I'm going to die anyway, let, let's take this risk, I feel like that's almost like you're being consumed by that thought mm. instead of accepting that whatever's going to happen is going to happen even if it's when I'm jumping off the cliff and doing a bungee jump or if I'm walking to work and getting a coffee. So I think it's just about doing whatever you're comfortable with and whatever brings you peace and joy. And if that means saying yes to everything and taking all of the risks then you know you go for it and if that means doing something a little bit more um conforming then yeah that's what works for you Mm. so would you say that's i mean that's quite quite a pragmatic way to look at it which 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 i like and i think I, i i sometimes um find myself in the middle I try to I'm, I'm sort of it's that, living that paradox a, a lot really um and I, that sort of bungee jump sort of analogy of you know I think about um just before you actually are but I bungee jumped and you, you're not necessarily you're not necessarily actively thinking about your death but there's something about I mean you, you're still doing it you're still you, you still know you're going to jump and you're not actively thinking this is it, although that's maybe what you're verbalising as you're at the top. But you're not, mm-hmm. I'm, cert- I'm, I'm certainly not meditating on death. I'm just, um, I'm, I'm, I'm so fear-struck and I'm so, I'm so lost in, and I suppose you could call that death anxiety at its sort of peak form. Um, but I haven't got the ability to use philosophy to sort of find my way out of it at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I do see, I, I do sort of respect and understand sort of your sort of view that, uh, you know, there, there's, there is a little bit of like, well, do we need to go down that path? Because it's going to happen anyway, or it could happen anyway. Um, but then it makes me think that whatever happens, happens. It does remind me of, this is going down a rabbit hole. I thought I was going to go down this path, but the, the sort of whatever happens happens. Sort of the uh, the sort of religious sort of connotations of um, having this sort of higher order God to m- meditate or mediate our lives and possibly stop us from asking these sort of deep philosophical questions. You know, like if we we know that this is going to happen if we know that there's a god or we know that there's something greater or that we're reincarnated that that's we stop asking questions about our life and our existence in the same way that if everything happens the way it happens we also stop asking questions um so i don't know how i've forged the connection between religion and that question but it just reminded me of this sort of this um it's relationship to this, this greater something else, this, this, this sense that um, it's not final, you know, that uh, we can live, um, we don't have to live freely because we're going to get a second chance. Yeah, I, I mean, definitely, definitely not living in the way that, you know, oh, I don't have to do anything with my life because I'm going to have another one or another three or another four. I've been here before, so... I think that it's more, you know, for me, it's more about accepting that I can't control, like there are things beyond my control and why for me, it's not necessarily not thinking about things and not understanding why I feel a certain way and reflecting on what I would do or or how I got to that place. But for me, an everyday occurrence isn't, oh, you know, what... What, you know what would happen if I did this and what would happen if I did that or I think you know there are definitely moments in your life where you're like holy fuck like I could have died and I have experienced you know um at least two quite serious ones one being not long ago um 
in an accident where I genuinely have no clue how I walked out alive. And, you know, you just kind of are standing there in those moments like, what just happened? And, you know, I think being able to understand what you're feeling and how you're feeling in that moment is very empowering because, you know, I, I crawled out and I was like, okay, I'm in shock, but I need to do this, this, and this. And I was able to do it. And people were coming up to me going, oh, you know, this is happening, this is happening, you need to do this. And I was like, that's okay. My body's doing this right now. I just need a minute. Let it do its thing. And then we can have a conversation. So I just think it's not necessarily that I haven't thought about those things and I don't prepare myself in a way, but it's just not an everyday occurrence that I remind myself with. Mm. Mm. So was this a sort of a car collision? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And obviously you're here now, unless I'm, unless I'm having some sort of dream fantasy thing going on, which I'm not. Um, so what if it ended then? What if, what if, would you, would you consider that? I don't want to sort of use your words, but did you, would you consider that a near death experience or something that lights went out or would you, or would you, would you say it was um, something that it was, it was a close call? How, how would you, how would you view it? Look, I would say that I was very, very lucky to walk out of there, literally walk out of there, basically mm. unscathed. I have no clue how. Um, so, yeah, I would probably say it was very close. And I, my, I my thinking is if it ended there, it wouldn't really mean anything to me, would it? I'm gone. But it's more to the people who are left behind. What are they going to feel? Yeah. I think, I think in those moments, that's that's when people expect your standard you know standard show of grief (laughs) but I think people don't realize that they grieve every single day and they don't even realize it you know if you have someone who you know who is unwell you are grieving that entire process and by the time that they are gone you're probably relieved not because they're gone but because they're not suffering because the person that you know or that you knew and that you loved was no longer there for the last six, 12 months or however long it was. So you, you did your grieving and now you can almost breathe again. Whereas people breathe so many different things, you know, and, and I'm not saying they're bad things, but, you know, if you have kids, how many people grieve the life that they had? You can't just drop everything and, and make a decision. Even if you have a pet, you can't just drop everything and go, you know what, let's go and do this. You have a responsibility. Yeah. And... I think people hear the word grief and they think immediately of death and they think immediately of, you know, finality, but they don't realise that there's so many different types of grieving. And if you really think about it, yeah, you probably have grieved for something almost mm. every day. Yeah, no, I, I love that. I love that grief as a, as a cycle, as something that's not just a, a tangible thing that occurs um due to it's not a, it's not a reaction it's not, a, it's not necessarily a reflex that occurs at a loss it's something that is very much ingrained and i i think you know it reminds me you know the the, the second that we're born and we're, and we're thrown into the world and you know we're getting older and every year um we get that that gap between um sort of death or maybe not death or 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 not having that person around anymore becomes smaller and smaller. And you're right. It is, it is, it is that sort of continual, at least my perspective on what you've just said is it is that sort of, you know, like a seven-year-old Jason or seven-year-old Jess um, is, was, was grieving in some way. Um, The loss of, you know, it's a bit like when you lose your mum at the shops and you can't find her and you get, and you have this sense of panic. Oh, actually, I don't know if I had that sense of panic, but I know my mum had that sense of panic. I was like, the mum had a sense of panic for sure. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm looking at the lollies at the in the in the, in the aisle, but um, it, it, it's almost like that. It's it's that sort of parent that that fear that that fear that not only you could lose that person that 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 um, 
you know, that as soon as you, you, you have a child or, or that you have a mother, you look up to someone that that person can be gone at any moment. And it's almost like it is a process of, I mean, I, I think this is the question is I don't know how often people would think about that. Though. I don't know how people would be aware that they are truly actually going to lose. Because um, intellectually, we, we can have this conversation, but how often, or is it even possible to emotionally understand or compute that your brother, my brother, you know, our family or our friends are, are, going, are going to die? and that we are constantly grieving, we're grieving now as we speak. Probably maybe the fact that we're having this conversation is an outlet to the grief. I'm not sure. But I, I think, yeah, you, you mentioning that was quite interesting because it's, it, 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 I, it sort of opposes what you said before about the, the pragmatic, um, you don't think about death, and, but in some ways you do. Because you're, if, if it's personal to you, you're, you're, you've got this, this, this knowing that you're grieving, the grieving a loss or grieving a disconnect between you and something else or someone else. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, it does. I, I guess it also depends on, I guess, and like that's kind of what I meant by it depends who and what mm. they are to me. Yeah. Because, you know, that if you might not be grieving, um, and thinking of death in that instance and that like for me I might not connect those two things for every person you know if you say hear someone died you're like, you know oh, that's really terrible I'm so sorry that that you're experiencing this but I guess depending on where you are personally depending on your relationship with them depending on anything else that might not affect you at all and it's not necessarily because that's death. Whereas if someone said, you know, um, someone stole my dog, I would be like, oh my god, someone stole like that is your child. Someone took your child. Like that is very traumatic. Mm-hmm. And I think it just really depends on your personal values and who that person is, and obviously how that affects how you process it in your mind. Because we all have our awesome barriers and biases and blocking everything and you know with some people those guards are down all the time so they say something or they do something or you have that fleeting thought that oh my god something could happen to them and it's probably going to hit a million times harder than someone who you don't know and you have some you know some barriers up with or some um really defined relationships with them so they could tell you something that the other person has told you that make you feel completely different or nothing at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so sort of context dependent and and individualistic, isn't it? Yeah. Which is which is why it's so interesting because like the stuff of loss and death is it, it is all it's, it's universal. It's going to happen to everybody, but it, you can't make the assumption that it's that it needs to be experienced in a certain way, right? It needs to be experienced through a, a common lens because that's just not the case, and it's not the way humans work um and i I suppose like you know these types of conversations and you know i would consider this as an open conversation of two sort of you know mildly different views on death in some ways but do you think like you know we both we met in the education system if you can call it that and and you know you know we we also went to sort of high school and sort of you know just it made me think these questions, these, these questions about humans, you know, we spend a lot of time, at least in my school, we spend a lot of time, you know, in, in, in math classes and physics classes and even religious, religious classes. But there's no question or conversation about what's it like to be a human from the inside. You know, there's no, there's no like, let's have a conversation about the human condition, the human being, Let's just sort of create these other constructs and you're on your way. And you wonder why, I mean, the work that you do, the work that I do, you wonder why we as humans, you know, me included, become, become lost in it. I think if, you know, 
schools are reluctant to teach sex ed properly, they're going to be really reluctant to question people's morals and religious views and cultural views and just everything. So I, I don't think that's, you know, it doesn't surprise me that that's not something that they're willing to teach us because, you know, like you said, it's, it's individual for everyone. So imagine talking to, um, you know, a group of 10-year-olds about their perception on what it means to be alive it would be amazingly refreshing to hear what if you said to a 10 year old what does being alive mean and they were like oh it means I'm breathing and you know I've got a heartbeat and this and then you ask maybe a 40 year old what's it like to be alive and they're probably going to be like you know monotony or whatever answers they're going to tell you you know I'm just thinking of someone who's doing a job they hate because they have to pay mortgage for something they don't really want and because they decided to follow a path that society told them to do. And if you ask both of those two polar opposites what it means to be alive, it's going to be completely different. So I think it would be amazing to ask those questions, but I don't think we have the space. Isn't that the thing? Isn't that the, the perfect thing that everybody, because like accepting differences is a huge issue in the world. You know, you don't, we just have to look at what's happening. The way people live, the way our, our cultural beliefs, our religious beliefs, the way we just sort of um, see the world is just so diverse. And generally, you know, there, there is, um, there's either a complete dissonance to others, other, other worlds or other ways of viewing the world. And, and I just wonder if, if it was more, um, you know, and I'm talking more Western culture because I can only speak from, from, from that place. If we were able to have conversations with a 10-year-old or with a 14-year-old or with a 15-year-old around, um, you know, not necessarily death, but, but just, just more about, um, you know, the, the basic sort of human um, emotion and the experience to be a human. And everyone, you're right, would have a different view. But that's the amazing part of it is that, you know, old mate, would have a different view, maybe more of a pragmatic view that's derived from their parents, and and you know, little Jess or little little Jason would have uh, would would go on a tangent, you know, about something you know <laughs> that's not related. But the fact that everybody can could hear that and and learn to actually listen and and actually go, you know, there actually is different ways to to, and it's an, it, it it's still you're in that learning environment, right? So you're not just the same way you're, just, you're sitting in a class listening to a math teacher talk, you know, it's, it's instead of a one-way interaction, you're listening, you're, you've got the opportunity to have, you know, and ask your questions yourself. And, you know, oh, that, you know, Jess mentioned something very interesting. Maybe she's onto something. Maybe I'll take that rabbit hole. And I just, I, I, I just, I just, I just wonder whether that, you know, we talk about sort of prevention and early start and mental health and crime where this all plays in, you know, to to the school's education. Look, in a perfect world, I think it would be, you know, like I said earlier, it starts at home and then it would be encouraged in schools that children from the start are encouraged to actually freely think and freely share emotions and are not punished if they don't conform or are not held up to certain expectations but to do that involves every single adult around them and every single person who's older than them and who this person comes into contact with because you know little sponges I think it just would involve so much self-awareness so much environmental awareness and I really hope that we're moving towards something like that and you can kind of see those things now with lots of different issues Mm -hmm. which I think is great but I think we're still unfortunately so far away from moving to a place where you can genuinely holistically look at a kid and say, okay, what's going on today? When, like, what is literally on your mind? And letting them go down their rabbit holes and explain, that's a really cool idea. Does everyone want to reflect on that? Or what's your opinion on this? Or if I say this, what, what, are you, what comes to your mind? I think that would be in this climate probably very dangerous to do because 
who knows what Ted's going to say. And you've got one poor, poor teacher who would have to handle all of those questions and all of those thoughts and feelings and everything else. But I think that it would be really cool to do. And I think that, you know, as, again, being idealistic as a parent, that's what you, you know, I would personally strive to be is someone coming up, like your kid coming up to you and saying, this is how I feel or this is what's going on in my head and exploring that and going, cool, that's normal. Tell yeah. me more. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, no, exactly. And I think, you, I think you're right. I think if you put this theory or this philosophy into the context of what is now, yeah, I suppose, yeah, there's a lot of, I have a lot of fear for the prospective teacher or the prospective, you know, you know, because I, th- I think it is a little bit unhinged at the moment. Um, and, and, you know, maybe it is more of a process. Maybe it is more around, um, you know, the, the sort of the, the parenting side of it, the, the, the responsibility of every individual to make that decision how they want to freely, you know, interact with their, with their, with their children. But that's, again, I think idealistic is the thing that comes to mind and I don't know how. I think it's a bit fantasy a little bit um even as i talk about it um but then it does make me think you know like we 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 talk about mental health and we talk about sort of the the, the, the destructive nature of how how people exist in the sense that is this is mental health just a reasonable way to react to to the world like is we when we, we talk about sort of the, the work that you do and the work that I do, it's it's different but similar. It's it's almost like people are reacting to the world around them, and we are coming it's coming along and labeling that as uh, functional, or we're labeling it as um, very very sort of clinical and very sort of distant from from the human from the human condition. And it's like if, if we're not having these discussions around, if adults are not having these discussions, if, if, if the general day-to-day are not even mildly having these open discussions around emotions and feelings and fears and what they're, what they're scared of and death and grief, then how, how else do you expect generally people to respond to the world, you know? And yet we further box them in and call them, you know, you know even in my own profession, mentally ill doesn't make any sense to me yeah no I I completely agree I think like you said people are well they're a result of the environment they're in and or they were in and they're a result of the people that were around them so I mean we can talk all night about all the experiments that were done on different people and putting them into different scenarios seeing how they would react and all the amazingly and unethical um, experiments that were done in various places around the world on, you know, twins and everything like that to say, okay, you came from the exact same person. You are almost a carbon copy of each other. Surely if I treat you differently, we're going to see a difference. So I think, I think it is, I think we're a little, like I said, a little way away, but, you know, we're having this conversation. Mm. So who's to say other people aren't having that conversation? And just because I guess our generation isn't the one who is at the top at the moment, we're not the ones in power at the moment, it doesn't mean we're not going to be one day. And by the time we get there, sure, there's probably going to be so many new perspectives and so many new ideas. But at least the one consistency we can see is progression. It's just, how slow are we doing that? Mm. As you're saying that, I'm thinking time's running out, you know, for our generation. I'm thinking, you know, like how many generations do you reckon said this? You know, we've, we've, we've got to do better. We've got to, you know, because you get to a point in your life where you want to, um, you want to invest in the world, I suppose, and you want to invest with, um, and everyone's different. Some people are more going to be more environmentally focused. Some people are going to be more, sort of you know mental health focused mental health focused or um you know work in this system that, that you're working the the or i call them the forgotten humans and you know 
I, 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 I think, I think it's all very well that we have this, this, these conversations, and I think it's great that this what we talk about. You know, our true listeners will be able to, you know, grab on and listen, and then hopefully have a discussion around, you know, an open discussion with a friend that they haven't seen in a few years um, around death or mental health or education. And, and I think that's the power in it. I think that's the power in having is, you know, really sort of, um, I don't know, sort of open, that sort of open um, dialogue really where, you know, you haven't really got an agenda necessarily. You're just talking, trying to talk in a human experience. You're just trying to talk about the human experience and, and that's it. You're not, you're not trying to do anything else than that. I think one of the, the privileges that we have and that especially the younger generations have is this insanely immediate, ridiculous access to whatever they want to hear. Yes. The downside being they can filter that out to exactly what they want to hear mm-hmm. and some people aren't open, I guess, to those new perspectives. But if you think about, you know, if you were interested in something when you were a kid and say if you went to the library to do a project, your only option was to walk to a certain section of the library and pull out a book and hope to God they had what you were looking for. Whereas now you can literally just tell your phone to search it for you and you are going to get an array of things from 50 years ago, 50 seconds ago. You're going to get so many different perspectives. You can get something that's supported by peers and um, that's proven on an educational level to someone's random theory who lives in the middle of nowhere. So I think, think, again, it kind of comes down to that progress and it might seem small, but when you look back to say grandparents, what in something as simple as you know women's rights mm. when your grandma was a young child could she do half the things that you know I could do mm. without being ostracized and judged and whatever else came with it I think there have been all of these things but again I feel like we're in a bit of a privileged position where we grew up not seeing that change I think some change that we have seen, which I think is amazing around like the LGBTQ space Mm. is so cool. But I guess it comes from all this perspective, like shouldn't we be there already? Why is this still happening? Mm. Why do we still need to keep arguing that, you know, women are earning 70 cents and men are earning a dollar or whatever else. So I think there's all this progress and there are all these people who are talking and who are thinking and who are sharing but maybe it's just not where everyone's hoping it to be and maybe it's just coming down to those. How do we get there? Do we have the resources? Do we have the power? And I guess like you were saying, it's kind of part of that human condition that really if we all actually communicated to each other, we're probably going to find that most of us are on the same page. And really if we wanted to, wouldn't we recognise that we are the ones with power, not 30 people who make the decisions for mm. an entire nation or an entire world. Mm. Yeah, it's it making me think again. I'm gonna, I feel like I need to put like a rabbit hole alert system. Like, because so, you know, the access, I'm going back a little bit to what you said about sort of access to, to knowledge and access to information. And I think that's great. I think it's, I think it's, it is, uh, that word privilege again is we have access, we, we have the ability to click our fingers and no one a- answer to our question. But there's also, there's also a whole different level of, um, you know, I suppose that's available to everybody now. Everybody can sort of um, temper and uh, project their views and those views can be, um, those views can be different and the, those views can be quite uh, damaging for, for some for some people and you know so for you know, a 12 year old boy asking a question you know, uh, on, you know on the internet or, or talking to his mates and he's got access to not only the parts of the world that are, that are growing you know things like things like women rights is a perfect example because it's obviously 
it's obviously something that's it's it's beyond belief that that we're still not not there. But then, my question to you, Jess, is what are the, what are the actual sort of tangible reasons or philosophical reasons we're not there? Because is it is it because we have people in power or different? This, this is getting a little bit Q and A on on a little bit. But <laughs> are we are we you know like what what's the disconnect there? What why aren't we there? Because it, 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 is it that people with power or or people of different subgroups are still are using their you know the new modes of media to to um, I don't know I suppose retract someone's ability to grow or, or the society's ability to grow into that space. Look, I I can only speak from my experience in that particular area, and even as a privileged white woman you know um there's even so much divide amongst say women because you have some who uh believe that whatever you know sex organs you're born with is who you are and you have others who completely believe that hey if this person says that they are a woman they are a woman and you have other people who go who cares whatever you think you are, you're a human and should we not all deserve the same treatment? I think people are still getting stuck on things like, um, I think where we should be going is equity and people are getting stuck on equality. And I think, again, it just goes back to, it goes back right to the start and you can give all the same like you can give everyone the exact same tools but it doesn't mean everyone's going to know how to use them it doesn't mean everyone's going to know what to do with them or maybe they're going to do something completely different but it's just as amazing as what they've got so I think we're not there yet for so many different reasons I think that I don't want to turn this into a feminist rant but um, I think there's a lot of different reasons and it, it can, it's applied to so many different areas of our lives. Um, and I just think it all comes back down to, I, th- I think people understanding that they have so much more power than they think they do, especially if they're willing to actually share their views and actually communicate. But you're always going to have someone telling you that, you know, you shouldn't say that to someone else or that you're being too loud or whatever else it is. So I think it, it all comes from those little societal expectations to tone down. Or if you are loud and, and the brightest star, people just think, oh, yeah, that, that, that's just one of those one-of-a-kind people. Like, we're not all that way. But is that because we've all been told that? We're not, or we shouldn't be. Mm. We need to we need to find our bright star. Each individual needs to find their bright star. Yeah, yeah, I love that because I think I think it is, you know, we're but we're so fear stricken in having a, a view on. Um, I mean, I mean, but then I'm. I think our views are so based on so many different factors, right? And what's different to say a feminist view, which I'm all for. Hundred percent, million percent. Um, but what, 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 what? You know, we have so many alternative, different ways of looking at social landscapes, and um, you know, what's stopping someone from um, self-proclaiming themselves as a, as a shining star and speaking in a in a quite a harmful way versus someone who's trying to just create equity, as you said. Um, you know what I suppose that that's the dilemma and it's probably not a less of a question and more of a just a um you know where where does it lead you know just constant debate yeah well maybe it's another question why does that person why do those two people have those two different opinions how did they both get to those places Mm. why are we viewing one as positive why are we viewing one as harmful and negative and if the majority of us go, oh, that's harmful and negative, maybe because it's hurting someone else and the other person isn't. How did that person get there? How did they start to believe that that was okay? How did they 
find the, I guess, the courage or the, the confidence or the support to get to that point. Mm. So I don't know, I guess I'm again going back to the start and why do we become who we are? How do mm. we become who we are? Mm. Mm. Okay, well, that's, I think that's a really good way. I mean, part of me, I just noticed, just checked the clock. Mm-hmm. I, I, um, I've got a funny feeling the Zoom might even cut out, but um, I'm surprised it didn't actually. But I do want to thank you um, for having this this chat. Um, I suppose it's exactly, in some ways, I didn't know we were going to talk about um, basically the last 45 minutes. I didn't think. I knew I, knew I would selfishly infuse death in. But I didn't think I didn't think um, we would be talking about some of the things that we have, and I think you know th- th- these are just sort of um, you know the, the the sort of mini fireworks or the, the sh- sh- you know shooting stars that you know need to be need to be sort of uncovered and need to be sort of brought out, and um, I think um, as I think I've told you I am moving to Perth, so hopefully we'll have have these conversations in human um, version um, in the not too distant future. Um, but, yeah, I thank you very much for coming on and sharing your views and just having a, having a chat with me. Thanks for asking me too. Okay.